This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I am joined, as usual, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome back to The Politics Guys. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's always fun when we are the ones taking things over. Uh, And this week is no exception. We've got a lot on deck. Uh, We're going to talk about the most recent news related to Navarro and his contempt for Congress conviction. We're going to talk about the Proud Boys sentencing and some of what I saw as being some of the uh, surprising responses to it. We're going to pivot from there and turn to Texas, get a little bit more local, although uh, maybe a little bit uh, less often happening, the impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton. From there, we're going to talk about some shock deficit numbers that came up this week and the doubling of the deficit at the national level. We're going to turn then, as we often do, to uh, international story and to Mexico's Supreme Court decision involving abortion. And then because this was, in fact, the week of Labor Day, we're going to do a politics guy's tradition, although it's the first time for Ken and myself to be doing it. And we're going to talk about labor in the United States and the state of labor in the United States. So that's what we've got on deck this week. So, Ken, I thought we'll jump right in with Peter Navarro. On Thursday, a jury found former Trump advisor Peter Navarro guilty of contempt of Congress. At issue was his defying a subpoena uh, issued in February of 2022 by the House Committee on the January 6th Capitol attack. Now, as has been noted, This comes after Steve Bannon was already sentenced to four years in jail for similarly defying that same committee and another subpoena. Now, the fundamental argument from Navarro was that Trump had instructed him to invoke executive privilege. Now, after the decision, Navarro said, uh, that's why this is going to the appeals court. This is going to the Supreme Court. I said from the beginning, I'm willing to go to prison to settle this issue, end quote. So, The ultimate question that's getting set up is, did the committee have to discuss this with Trump to determine executive privilege in advance, as Navarro claims, or as prosecutors obviously successfully argued, that he still had to show up to the deposition and cite the privilege on a question-by-question basis? So the court had not allowed him to use that executive privilege argument, although we need to be careful, and and, Ken and I, we've talked about this before, There really isn't a singular thing known as executive privilege. 
But in this case, what he's arguing is, is that the deliberative pro- decision-making process privilege uh, that he had with Trump is not able to come out before uh, uh, Congress. So those decisions then should be shielded uh, because Trump then told him not to do it. But again, there's a lot uh, of, you know, we've talked about that before. We talked about Bannon. So Ken, what's your, is there any really thing new here from the Bannon to the, uh, to, to, to the Navarro case? No, I don't, I don't think so. And, and um, I, I would like to, you know, just clarify for the listeners um, the contours of executive privilege. So there is such a thing as executive privilege, um, and privilege is uh, related to certain communications between the president and his top advisors um, that relate to the scope of the president's duties, right? So those kinds of communications don't necessarily have to be disclosed. Um, but in, in Navarro's case, his argument was so frivolous um, that the, the judge didn't even allow him to make it to the jury um, that, that this could apply. Because um, if, if, in order to invoke executive privilege, two things that you'd have to have, which, which Navarro didn't have at all, one is there'd have to be some evidence that the president was claiming the privilege. You know, that, that was just totally lacking here. Trump, Trump never um, said that, there, that he was invoking executive privilege. Uh, and, and the president would have to exoke, he wouldn't necessarily have to testify about it and say, you know, go under oath and say, I'm invoking executive privilege. But he'd at least have to submit a document or something to the Congress um, saying, saying that he's claiming executive privilege. We ha- actually have no reason to believe that Trump ever claimed any executive privilege over any of these communications. And the, the privilege belongs to Trump, not to Navarro. Um, and then and then the, the secondary thing is um, N- Navarro did not show up when he was subpoenaed. And there are many things that he could have been asked about where it wouldn't have been possible for executive privilege to apply because executive privilege could only apply to discussions that he had with the president, but he could have been asked about other things. Like um, other, about, other things it, he produced and gave to other people, for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he could have even been asked, you know, did, were, were you, you know, did you have a job as a White House economic advisor? You know, he should have answered yes to that. He shouldn't have said, I, I can't answer that because of executive privilege, right? There's no, there's no confidential communication at issue in, in questions like that. And so it would, ha- so, so his refusal to answer any questions combined with his lack of evidence that, that Trump ever did uh, claim executive privilege meant that he, he had no executive privilege uh, argument whatsoever. And th- there's a 0% chance that the DC circuit will um, reverse this case. And I would say a 0% chance that the Supreme Court will even take this case. But I think that the, the, the real um, issue here, which is uh, kind of a new development ever since Trump um, pardoned uh, uh, Manafort and 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 Bannon and and Roger Stone um, is uh, you know really like the whole concept of taking an appeal now is not that there's any merit to the appeal, but it's just playing for time. You know, throwing the hail mary pass that um, you know maybe Trump or, or a Trumper will take the White House and 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 give a pardon before uh, Navarro ever has to go to prison. That that's his whole entire strategy here. So in effect. I mean, and, and you are probably one of the most critical of the Supreme Court. And, and your answer is, look, they're not even going to get this take case up. No, this one's way too trivial. It's it's not. There's literally no evidence from which um, anyone could look at that record in this trial and say that there was executive privilege here. Uh, you know, as I say, no, no, he didn't. He his blanket refusal to show up 
um, meant that he was uh, exercising contempt of Congress, um, even with respect to questions that they might have asked him that wouldn't have implicated executive privilege. And also, you know, you have to actually get a document or something, some evidence from the president that the president claimed the privilege. What do you think his advantage is? You know, oftentimes when I take a look at these circumstances and, and this exceeds the legal standing, I'm often curious about the human behavior element of it and what he thinks he is going to be winning or losing in the future for taking this, uh, uh, this particular position. And for me, I think that's one of the things I think with Bannon, I sort of understood. Uh, but the Navarro, I, I'm just not positive that I have a good grasp of, you know, if somebody said to me, well, what do you think he's going to gain out of this? Uh, I mean, I recognize there is always, of course, kind of the orbit of Trump. But that doesn't feel like it's it's a full enough explanation to say. And I, and I think your your commentary there on the okay, we're we're holding out for the the pardon. Okay, fair. But at the same time, you have to recognize. I mean, he, he's not an idiot. That that's not a guaranteed possibility. Since I mean, you're, you're hoping that the, that the that the White House is going to flip. So, do you think there's other things to be won here? Why why take such the frivolous position? Uh, at the outset, what's the advantage? I mean, again, for me, I wish I, I wish I could float an answer to my own question, but I, I don't think I have a good one. I think it depends on what you define as the outset, right? So, if you ask, if you define the outset as, you know, why did he refuse to show up uh, when the House subpoenaed him? Um, I think he did not believe there was a serious chance he'd be held accountable, right? I mean, at this time, you know, Trump was still the president. Um, uh, there, there were a, a number of um, uh, Republicans in Congress, and they were expecting more pickups than they got um, it, first in the 2018 midterm, and then in the um, uh, 20. I'm sorry, first in the 2020 election, and then in the 2022 okay. okay. midterm. Yeah. I was going to say, wait, I'm a little confused now, but that's okay. No, I, go, I, go, I, go, go. I got my dates wrong. I mean, yeah, 20, both both in 20 and in 22, the Republicans expected more pickups. You know, they, I think they just didn't think that. Um, I think he never contemplated at the time that he didn't show up in response to the subpoena that 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 Congress would ever hold him accountable by voting contempt against him, or even if they did, uh, that that any any White House would ever actually enforce it. And I think the other thing that made him think that is just how minor the penalty is for the offense, right? So. So it would be a big deal for the Justice Department to pursue this prosecution. And, you know, he has been convicted and under the sentencing guidelines, you know, he might, you know, pay a fine or possibly serve like a week or two in prison. But it's not a major offense. So I think he thought the the minorness of the offense um, would mean um, that nobody would pursue it. So I think if you look at that outset, um, that's why he that's why he held that's why he why he kissed up to Trump because he didn't believe that he would end up having to pay this price that he's actually paying. And he, and the price itself is relatively low. Is relatively low, and then and then I think now if you ask, well, once he's been um, indicted and 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 you know why doesn't he just plead guilty? Why is he going through with all this? Um, you know, there again, I think it's a similar calculus that that because it's a relatively low uh, uh, penalty for a conviction, uh, especially for someone with a clean criminal record, a first offender, someone who's not a gang member, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, I, th I think he probably figures he there's not that much better of a deal that he could get from pleading guilty than from from pleading um, not guilty. Probably the best thing he could get from pleading guilty would be a guarantee that he's not going to prison, but he'd, he'd still be a felon. He still might have to pay a fine. Um, he'd still probably have to talk to a probation officer. Um, and so if you add the chance that he might have to go a week or two to prison, 
if he goes to trial. You know, I, I don't know that he sees that as a hugely higher cost to pay. And meanwhile, he's a hero to the Trumpers, you know, and I think he will find ways to monetize this and to get other benefits out of it. So we're going to get the uh, maybe the book in the future. Uh, I was in, in, in prison by the uh, left. Yeah. And if, if, if Trump or any Trumper comes back into the White House, um, he's probably going to be, you know, maybe back in again and things like that. He doesn't have to deal with, uh, you know, Trump generally. You look at like the Michael Cohen types who turn um, against Trump and then they have to deal with the opprobrium of all the of Trump and all the Trumpers. And, you know, Navarro's not having to deal with that. So I, to me, those kind of things are playing into his calculus. And I, I do think the relatively light penalties are certainly playing a role in how he how he weighs that calculus. Well, why don't we kind of expand this conversation then and, and take in part of story two, uh, which was the Proud Boy sentencing uh, uh, this week, or really the polarization of it and the politicalization of it this week. So now just for first setup for everybody, you know, I, I follow a lot of people on the right on X, uh, uh, you know, the, the social media site formerly known as Twitter. And um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the jokes just keep coming for that one. Uh, but, and, and, and one of the reasons I do that, I mean, students ask me this, others, I want to understand, I mean, that's part of what I do as a political scientist. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious about those spaces. I'm curious about, uh, uh, spaces on the left, on the right. And that sometimes helps you understand what might be coming down the line. And so I can't say that I was, it was really initially shocked when I saw those particular channels. Uh, uh, coming up with the reactions from this week's Proud Boys sentencing. Um, which honestly, you know, when it finally then made its more mainstream uh, uh, version of it later this week, that was the part that mor- uh, morphing that was a little bit more shocking to me. Um, so while I do have a little bit of sympathy for some part of this argument, we'll get there. Uh, my basic take is that this is kind of a weird turn and it maybe goes into what you were talking about in terms of Navarro. So let's kind of back up, go through the details. So on January 6th, Proud Boy members took to the streets and to the Capitol in an effort that was organized by Enrique Taro uh, and the leader of the Proud Boys. And after a number of sentences for other Proud Boys, which ranged from 10 to 17 years, depending on the number of felonies, and importantly, uh, a few of them were not able to be found, uh, were not found guilty of sedition charges. So whether or not they had the uh, sedition charges uh, uh, changed those terms. Now, Enrique was sentenced to 22 years in prison on Tuesday uh, on two counts. And part of what took some observers by surprise was that Judge Timothy Kelly ruled that the Proud Boys actions represented terrorism since it amounted to, quote, the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government or civilian population in furtherance of a political or social objective. And by the way, that is pretty much just the FBI's definition of terrorism. So this sent both the defendants who argued that it wasn't terrorism and a lot of right leaning political commentaries, commentators, excuse me, to argue that this is counter to the kinds of sentences that generally get doled out by the Justice Department, specifically in relations to the Black Lives Matter protests. So in response to this, as a matter of fact, if anybody wants to take a look at this, The AP ran a study and found that, in fact, when you take a look at the BLM uh, protests, that 120 defendants pled guilty or were convicted at the federal level and that the average was 27 months behind bars with 10 receiving five or more years in prison sentences. Now, the one specific area where the AP found things to be a little bit different was in Portland, Oregon. And in that particular case, 60 of the 100 cases 
were actually mainly sent to what's uh, generally called deferred resolution agreements. That's effectively where you kind of agree it's your first defense. Uh, I'm not going to get any other trouble. I'm going to do certain actions. I'm going to report in. And if I do that, then the charges uh, get dropped. So this past Tuesday, there's a lot of sympathy for Enrique. Uh, And then what got weird is, of course, yesterday when presidential candidate Ron DeSantis got in on it. So he argued on Newsmax this week that his White House would look into all these cases of what he called, quote, a protest that evolved into a riot, end quote, to uncover the many people, quote, that should not have been prosecuted, end quote. He'd go on to say that, quote, they just walked into the Capitol. If they, and in this case, he's meaning Black Lives Matter, they would not have been prosecuted, end quote. Now, that may be because they were violent, as he went on to say, but it's, it's not an act of terrorism, which was basically a protest that devolved into a riot to do these excessive sentences. So again, I'm just summarizing uh, DeSantis there. Uh, so DeSantis would go on to argue that they may be guilty, but that 22 years is obsessive. Now, for those who may or may not know, DeSantis is actually a former Navy JAG lawyer. So his background is on this front. Uh, and so he was arguing, look, we need a standard of justice. So if you elect me, one of the things he is actively running on then, and this is, this is the part that I was a little surprised about, or maybe a lot surprised about, uh, you know, he's now running to say, look, we're going to use pardons and we're going to commute sentences if I'm elected to make this equal to what we see happening with uh, 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 BLM. You know, and, and one of the things that came out of this as well has been a commentary that says, look, individuals are being more excessively punished if they don't do uh, um, plea bargains in advance. Now, this is actually an area, Ken, you know, where I, I'm going to actually talk about some of my students. My students kind of did some early studies uh, about a year ago where they were really curious about this issue of plea bargaining and all of that. As a matter of fact, plea bargaining in and of itself is pretty much the American <laughs> justice system. Uh, and and that's, that's not unique to this case. But I, I will plug my students who uh, did some mathematical work to figure that out. So, Ken, I mean, I mean, obviously, maybe you're not as surprised as I was on, on some of these fronts. Maybe you were. Uh, but it did seem a little shocking for me that a candidate would come out and say, hey, look, I, you know, one of my first orders of business is going to be potentially to commute or to pardon some proud boys. What do you think about that? Yeah, you covered so many things there. there I know there's, there's so there's much. I, I get yeah. it. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so, so uh, do you, I think I want to respond both to the uh, issue about the use of pardons um, and also just to the the merits of the um, sentences. But um, did you only want me to respond to one of the others of those two oh, things? Oh no, or, please. Yeah, okay. I, I was trying to set. I was trying to set yeah. both things up. So please do. Please yeah, do. So, so on the pardons first, because that's where you ended. But also that goes along with the we were just talking about uh, Navarro. Um, I, I I think that the um the, this is the, this is an assault on the rule of law that is probably the most serious that that I've ever seen, where you have um you know uh, the idea that um if people engage in in various crimes whether it's crimes of fraud like the fake electors or or, or violent crimes um like the ones that were initiated at the Capitol on January sixth um and and then um they, they they know that they may have to go through a court proceeding because they can be charged with those crimes but we're viewing kind of the, the they're viewing the criminal court proceeding as like a a way station a theatrical way station on the role to a presidential pardon and 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 judges 
as as kind of just the props in a public spectacle um, before the the the, the strong man who um, is in power um, just just lets them off because he was carrying out their uh, uh, political hatchet work. Uh, that, that's I think that is the most sustained attack on the rule of law that that I've actually ever seen. And so that may st- sound like a strong statement, but you know, in 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 Watergate, you know, Nixon of course got pardoned, but nobody even talked about pardoning all the other Watergate criminals, and and they they all went to prison. And and similarly, you know, in the um, Iran Contra, um, there you know the the nothing ever. No Reagan and and Bush were never held accountable at all, but other other figures like Oliver North, you know, were were prosecuted, and although he ultimately was able to get his conviction reversed because of Fifth Amendment violations, um, where he was compelled to testify in Congress, and then those words were improperly used against him. That was all part of a judicial proceeding. Nobody pardoned Oliver North, and and the the idea that you know the, the pardon is there to be used so that when presidents or authoritarian strongmen want to uh, commit crimes and have their henchmen carry out their crimes, that the henchmen can receive the wink and the nod that don't worry, nobody can ever hold you accountable for this. It does seem different in kind to me than anything we've seen before. Um, Trump certainly signaled with his pardons of Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and and uh, Steve Bannon, you know that that that's how he plans to use the pardon. I mean, I remember just you know twenty a little more than maybe thirty years ago. You probably remember this that um, although I know you're a little younger than me, when when um, uh, Bill Clinton pardoned um, Mark Rich, who was a major campaign contributor of hers of his, um, that was seen as such a scandal. Um, that Congress was holding hearings about, you know, passing legislation to restrict the use of the pardon power. Yeah, that's and, right. And I, yeah. And, and I would say, you know, pardoning someone who's a major campaign contributor because perhaps they gave a lot of money to a campaign is corrupt, but it, it's it's nowhere near as corrupt as pardoning people who are going out and committing violent crimes on behalf of um, uh, illegitimate efforts by um, uh, the, the president in power um, to, to overthrow an election. Well, I don't, I don't agree with this one, but let's throw it out there because that's part of the narrative that's been here, right? But, you know, Enrique, he wasn't there, Ken, right? He was just planning it, right? And so, you know, <laughs> should he right. get a... Should it, he should it, he get to have a little bit of a commutation or commuted a little bit? <laughs> I mean, he got the heaviest sentence of anybody because he was the uh, planner and organizer, and in fact, because he was also the conduit through Roger Stone um, to the White House. And uh, and remember, his planning included things like um, you know having lots and lots of guns. Uh, brought into um, nearby hotel rooms in Virginia so that um, depending how things went, you know, he could give the order and there could be the, the violence could have been escalated into heavy gun violence if, if the um, if the January 6th people had been actually met um, with more of a display of force than they were. And uh, um, and, and so, you know, the, the crimes that he was convicted of um, were, you know, I think he, he got given a sentence that was light under the sentencing guidelines. I think the, the sentencing guidelines suggested a 30 year sentence and he got a 22 year sentence. Um, and, and that was in part influenced by the judges, uh, uh finding that, um, so many of the other people convicted of the January six crimes had been given, um, uh, sentences that were much lighter than what the sentencing guidelines would call for, that it would be unfair to single out, uh, Tario and give him one that was as much as the sentencing guidelines called for. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you've hit it, and this is probably one where we're not going to have a, a, a ton of space between us. Um, it, it is it is strange to me that this is the hill. 
<laughs> I, mean, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, for DeSantis specifically, right? Like I get, and you know, it's in my framework of Trump, right? And that's been a long time bugaboo of mine. Um, and while I d- deeply disagree with, with some of the policies of DeSantis, it seems strange that this is the hill, right? Like, you know, this is going to be the hill. And it even seems strange on the front of, I, I get that he wants to make this connections to Black Lives Matter. Uh, and I get that he wants to, to come after uh, uh, the left. And, and, I, and I honestly think when you take a look at the AP study, that there are places around the country, Seattle you know, being one of them, where you could make some arguments where you know, th- those on the left, I don't think handled that as well as, as they could have. But the problem is, is that doing it in the context of Enrique just destroys all of that for me. You know, there, 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 there's no argument left anymore. What you bring it into this context. And and, and so I I guess for me, unlike in the last one, I think I at least have a standard. And I think the answer is, is right now, you know, the Republican Party is effectively the Trump Party. And so it doesn't matter which of the candidates we're really talking about. Any of the candidates who really have an opportunity to win are either actually Trumpian in their ways or assuming that they have to put on that garb in order to be able to carry the mantle on, at least in this particular election cycle. Uh, And because in this case, I don't I I, it is hard for me to think that that Ron DeSantis actually believes this. And especially given that he's doing it on Newsmax. And that doesn't excuse him making those comments. But, you know, I think this is him trying to wear those clothes so that he doesn't continue to hemorrhage uh, uh, poll numbers. Yeah, and yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, a couple of things just to you know maybe help uh, put some th- some of these things into context in terms of the sentencing. You mentioned that he was a JAG lawyer, and I find that interesting. I didn't actually know that. Yeah. But yeah. but but one thing about the JAG, which is different than probably most people's intuition, is when when most people think about military justice and the and the military courts, they they probably think it will be you know tough because the you know the military is seen as tough. But actually, there there are no courts more lenient to defend than military courts. Um, and, and that's because part of the objective of military courts is to actually, you know, if they've got soldiers who are in the army, you know, the idea is to get them back to work and not to be locking them up for a long time. Like the, the army oh, yeah. has very much of an objective to do that. So so he may be used to more lenient um, uh, justice and not uh, tougher, stricter justice. So um, maybe his background in this case yeah, might yeah. also be reinforcing that particular yeah, view. Right, okay, right. Okay. That's, that's what I was going to say. I was actually going to toss him that bone and saying, you know, there's maybe maybe based on his experiences as a JAG lawyer, he's, he usually sees that um, the, the, the concept of a criminal criminal justice system is to quickly rehabilitate people, because that's really how the JAG Corps treats um, soldiers who commit crimes. And and uh, um, the other thing about sentencing guidelines, I know you mentioned that he's complaining that they use some of the terrorism um, sentencing uh, enhancements, um, which, you know, to some people might seem as though, but he wasn't he wasn't um, uh, convicted of terrorism, although he was convicted of sedition. Right. Um, but um, in the in the sentencing guidelines, um, it, it is the case, and this is true across all all people are sentenced in federal courts that 
um, if if um, if conduct is proved in the trial that isn't necessarily um, you know the elements of the particular crimes that were proved, that that um, that conduct can be taken account of under sentencing guidelines. And in fact, the the standard of proof is lower. Um, so everybody knows that you know for for a criminal uh, uh, for a defendant to be convicted of a crime, the jury has to find that the proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. That they have to be the, the elements all have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, but if there's if there's facts in the record that are proved by the preponderance of evidence standard, in other words, more likely than not, um, the allegations are true, uh, doesn't have to be reasonable doubt, um, the, then those facts can be taken into evidence um, in, the, in the application of the sentencing guidelines. So the sentence can reflect all the conduct that was proved, not just the conduct that was formed part of the elements of the crime. And, and the standard of proof is only uh, more likely than not. So it's not at all uncommon for uh, federal defendants to be sentenced, and some of the factors that are mentioned at sentencing may not track exactly with the um, elements of the crimes that they were convicted of. That, so I'll be honest, I, that was an element that I didn't realize. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why something that he's uh, trying to call out as, as unusual is actually not unusual. It's the norm all the time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that is, that's, a, that's a useful uh, take that even I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, the larger here is, is just the, it, it, it is frustrating uh, to a, a never Trumper Republican, former <laughs> yeah. Republican to, to, to see that he, he, the extent to which he won, <laughs> continues to win. Yeah, yeah you know, it, it, yeah, that is just depressing to me. I mean, probably more, I mean, it's probably not as depressing to you. You're probably like, this is why we're all going to be Democrats one day and we'll win. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm just like, oh, we need to have like, anyway, but. Uh, <laughs> it's depressing to me to think that if a Republican wins, a lot of these guys might actually get pardoned. I, I think that's horrific, really. I'll be honest, you know, personally, my hope is, is that this is one of those you make promises, but they're low on the priority list <laughs> kind yeah. of items. So that if they were to win, but I, in all honesty, I don't think DeSantis, as we had talked about, I don't think he has a lot of chance of winning. No, no he's um, not going to win. Yeah. No, I mean, so, and, Trump, and, so Trump. and we all know what Trump's going to do because he, he signaled that from from day one. Yeah, I think he will. He will pardon a lot of these people. I actually think he's more likely to pardon the Enrico Terrios of the world than the Peter Navarros of the world. Well, because it's easier to understand. Yeah, I don't mean that as an insult. Like, I, I think that is, in his view, you know, a, a, a straightforward yeah, I also think he respects like the fact that the these these proud boys are uh, out there using violence on his behalf. I think he respects that. Whereas I think he looks at all the the paper coup plotters like Navarro as people who just launched uh, harebrained schemes that failed and he doesn't owe them anything. That's why he's not paying his legal bills to Giuliani. Yeah. Well, and again, this is, this isn't something, you know, Navarro is not something that Trump has even weighed into to this point. You'll notice that wasn't even part of our lead into the story, but yeah, and Trump could have Trump could have kept him out of jail by giving him a piece of paper that said I instructed him to invoke uh, executive privilege. Right, he didn't even have to have in that, that case a pardon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that in and of itself is is telling in many ways. Well, you know, maybe we should uh, move forward a little bit here, uh, uh, Ken. Uh, so we'll pause for just a second. We'll be right up and we're going to be talking about uh, General uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton of Texas and his impeachment. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So, uh, Ken, man, Paxton, he's a wild guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I was looking at this and, you know, you were talking about watching it. I have been I've been following it pretty closely. I didn't actually get to watch it the way uh, it, you, we talked about before the show. Uh, but I did, in fact, you know, pop up all the articles impeachment. And I, and it, it's it, it's OK. It's not often that you read, you know, a 20, uh, a 20 some article uh, uh, impeachment against somebody. And are just kind of gripped. You're like, okay, and what happened next? You know. <laughs> um, so let's try to get through that for for listeners and, and see what's going on. So Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton, you might imagine, is a Republican. Uh, you know, again, it's Texas. Uh, but to kind of set up what's going on here, his impeachment begins because 70 percent of Republicans voted in uh, against him in the, the Texas House, 121 to 23. Right. That's you know, again, remember, nobody wants to vote against their own party. Nobody wants to impeach their own member. So that kind of number is pretty incredible. Uh, and as we had talked about before the show, this is a really kind of unusual occurrence, whether it's Texas or otherwise. So in the Texas process, similar to the national process, this then leads you to a senatorial trial. So what are all the things that, that are coming up in this trial? Well, let's take a look and we'll go back. I'm going to need a deep breath for all of the issues. So what did, what did Paxton do? Well, again, we have 20 articles of impeachment against him, and, and let's go through some of them. He had improper dealings with the real estate owner, Nate Paul, who he fixed things up for Nate Paul while Nate Paul was fixing things up for Paxton's mistress. He then used taxpayer funds to pay an outside law firm to try to help with the Nate Paul who fixed up for his mistress fix things up. Now, this also includes the protection of particular charitable organizations, the misuse of his powers to issue wrongful legal opinions to stop a foreclosure, again, for you guessed it, Nate Paul, uh, have employees act contrary to the open records process, Send an attorney after people who didn't, he did not like to the benefit of, again, you guessed it, Nate Paul. Conduct sham investigations at ta- taxpayers' expenses. Conceal his own wrongful acts via illegal acts. Not to mention a whole slew of issues dealing with just what he was doing with his mistress. And no, that's not a sexual innuendo. That's the, <laughs> the business side of things. Um, now, Paxton on the other side, and this is kind of the, the, the crazy part. I didn't know about this until, of course, you know, even impeachment trial going on in Texas. But 
His defense is, is that he can't be prosecuted because of a piece of the Texas Constitution, which lawyers often talk, call the prior term doctrine. Okay, so what was this? I had to look into this. I actually had to read the state constitution of Texas to find this out uh, and look at some others. So in the Texas state constitution, what it kind of states is, look, if issues come out prior to an election and there's some ambiguity about what that means, then voters know about the issue and decided to vote for you anyway, and therefore you're exempt from impeachment. Now, that portion of the Texas Constitution, it's a bit unclear. So I kind of looked, like I said, looked at some other scholars' interpretation of it. And, and the big kind of breakdown is, does it mean your first ever election or does it mean your most recent election? Now, some of the things he's being impeached with are prior to his current election, but not all of them. So there's kind of some questions, even if wouldn't it apply or not? Uh, but nevertheless, Southern Methodist University professor of political science, Cal Gilson, said, it is ultimately up to Lieutenant Governor Patrick to arbitrate the meaning of those words, because in their system, instead of having the Supreme Court justice uh, uh, sit and try in the Senate, it's actually the Lieutenant Governor who does that and sees, oversees the impeachment trial. But that really is the centrality of his claim. Now, to be fair, his lawyer says that all of these things are, are, are false, uh, but it doesn't even matter that they're false because you, you can't bring them forward. But that's going to be the primary defense, at least at this point, uh, that we've seen. And again, you know, learning something new. But if you want to have a lot of fun, you can head to Senate.Texas.gov and find the whole 20 impeachment articles right there. Uh, it's H.R. Uh, 2377. But uh, so, Ken, what are your thoughts on this impeachment process? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't know much about um, uh, uh, Attorney General Paxton. Uh, uh, I knew he was a, a kind of national uh, leader of the the Christian right legal community. But I, I didn't know much about how he ran his, his uh, um, office in Texas. And I really just started uh, watching and listening to the impeachment trial because it's just such a rare opportunity to watch and listen to an impeachment trial, though <laughs> I guess really probably more in the past five years than <laughs> long before that. But uh, true um, story, I mean, like, what, this yeah. is number three, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But a couple a couple of things that have kind of um, caught my attention. Um, and I'll, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, too, is that it seems to me that uh, the, the one thing I kind of knew about Paxton before all this um, was that he was a, a leader of the, the, the Christian conservative legal community nationally. And it does seem like um, he was a magnet um, for people in that community to want to come to work for him. That, you know, for instance, he was a, a fiercely anti-abortion um, attorney general and people who shared those views and who were competent lawyers you know, saw it as a real plum job to get to go to work in his office. And he very kind of anti-LGBT type type lawyer. And again, he kind of assembled, um, I think, a fairly earnest and fairly well-qualified staff of uh, deputies, primarily who shared his views, and that's why they wanted to come work there. Um, and it's interesting because um, I don't think too many of them shared his corruption or had much tolerance for his corruption. And so you, you have this this weird um, spectacle where uh, they're all upset. These, yeah. <laughs> all, all these people that he handpicked and hired and they came to this job mainly because he was the guy, you know, not not just because they wanted to work in a state attorney general's office, but more because they wanted to work for Ken Pax and because of the positions he was publicly taking and articulating. They all became the whistleblowers who are turning him in for all this corruption. And, and, and most of the witnesses that you see 
are his own deputies that he handpicked for these jobs and who are testifying, you know, at great length about how much they share his views and still share his views, um, you know, but just couldn't abide by the level of corruption that they were witnessing. And uh, um, it, it's really quite a spectacle to see that. Um, and so that that's kind of one thing that's caught my eye about this whole thing. Well, in some ways, it almost it, it does. It, I found there to be comfort in that, in a sense. Right. And so uh, in that sense, you had individuals who were like, look, this is what I thought you were doing and what you were purporting to do. And, and I think that that not on this scale, but I do think that happens not just in politics. I think that happens across the board a lot. The person who oftentimes is the the, the center of attention is generally there because they're making themselves the center of attention. And it doesn't always mean that they quite buy everything that they're doing. And, and, that, and maybe that might be part of this uh, takeaway. This might be an example of Ken Paxton, kind of the, the fraud <laughs> on that yeah. front. And, uh, and I think you're right to note, I mean, and, and this is something, you know, we had talked about at the national level, you know, where we didn't really see a lot of people willing uh, uh, to cross to, uh, to come after uh, Trump. Uh, here you see uh, Republicans in Texas, I think, doing kind of the right thing and saying, like, we, we definitely we got to impeach this guy. Yeah, these are yeah, these are yeah, his deputies. I mean, in, in the Trump White House, you see that a little bit at the lower levels, I suppose. So, but not at the yeah, level we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah not yeah, yeah, right. I, well, I guess with Trump, the White House counsel, um, uh, you know, did try to you know stop a lot of the January sixth stuff internally, but we didn't really see that visibly until after the January sixth com- committee uh, uh, congressional hearings happened. But um, but yeah, here we we saw a lot of these people are filing anonymous whistleblower complaints and not coming out publicly and not knowing what was going to come of it. But but eventually what came of all the anonymous whistleblower complaints is that there's this impeachment trial. So now now they're all actually taking the stand and, and coming out in public and and talking about all the very strange and very obviously uh, corrupt things that um, that, that uh, Paxton was doing uh, primarily on behalf of uh, Nate Paul, um, you know, and seemingly inexplicable other than in, in exchange for big bribes. Yeah. You know, this is something else. I haven't done a study on this, and so I'm just going to kind of float this. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Have you noticed that there's an obvious – right, let me pause. Not an obvious, but th- th- does there seem to you also to be a sense – and I, I'm being careful here because I, I mean this in a, in a real way, and I, this is not an attack on particular communities, but there is certain kinds of hiding of – let me put it – Sexual hiding, <laughs> I don't have to put that, is often related to lots of other misdeeds. Does that make sense when I'm trying to get at there, Ken? I don't know. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. You're saying like the, the fact that he was having uh, these affairs with a mistress doesn't surprise you now that you know that he was corrupt in other respects, that you'd almost expect that to be part of yeah, it. Yeah, and you, oftentimes that's the thing that comes out first. Right. And, and then, you know, everybody's like, well, that's just it's just oh, that's just the relationship. And what I'm saying is that I think there's almost I think the two often go together with uh, individuals who have attention on them purposefully. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to know. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the, the the thing of having the mistresses, um, you know, I suppose a lot of uh, politicians and elected officials um, that's that's been an issue, and and I think that may be true for ones who are not otherwise corrupt, as well as ones who are otherwise corrupt. Um, so I, I, it's hard for me to 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 make a generalization about that. 
But yeah, that part of it, I think, probably did contribute to why the whistleblowers in this particular case, you know, when you're talking about this particular group of um, really uh, true believing Christian conservatives, I think to them, it made them even more likely that they would become whistleblowers when they saw, you know, the various um, uh, uh, infidelities um, uh, along with the financial corruption. Well, I'm going to try to keep us on track here today, Ken. So we need to move on to our next story. We'll leave uh, Paxton, and I'm pretty sure the uh, short remaining time of his term in office uh, for the minute uh, to turn to another big story that got broken earlier this week was from Jeff Stein from the Washington Post. Which showed, which was a little bit of a shock when we take a look. We we talked about this earlier in the year. As a matter of fact, I think that was, uh, I think Mike and Jay were the ones who looked at that. Uh, no, no, don't hold that to me. Uh, when we were trying to talk about and think about what's going on deficit wise. So as the fiscal year ends, and that happens in September, and that's going to continue to be a big deal as we uh, think about Congress, but we'll put that to the side for a minute. Uh, the deficit doubled from 2022. Uh, and again, you can take a look at Jeff Simon's work with the Washington Post uh, for all the details on that breaking. So prior to 2020, COVID spending uh, deficit numbers kind of rested under one trillion again. And again, what I mean by that is each year we were bringing in, uh, you know, we were spending a trillion more, a little less than that, uh, than what we were bringing in in revenue. Uh, and then, of course, we have kind of the aberration uh, of COVID. As a matter of fact, I remember, Ken, be, right before COVID, you and I had had kind of a, a, a disagreement about how much the uh, deficit mattered. And I, I was even trying to maybe bringing Trump uh, a little bit more grief than you were on that front. Uh, but uh, then in 2020, we have $3.1 trillion, not a big sh- a surprise given the kind of spending we saw. In 2021, we have $2.8 trillion. Uh, and then last year, there was where you might consider kind of a law where things returned to normal at about $1 trillion. But this year, we double that from approximately $1 trillion to a little over $2 trillion. Now, again, I'm not taking a side on this one, but that is, as many has been reported, you know, that, of course, doesn't include the $400 billion that uh, Biden wanted to do in student loan cancellation, which would have taken that to approximately $2.5 trillion. But anyway, we'll leave that there for a minute. So what makes this particularly profound is it's happening in a time of amazing growth, right? So right now we have surging interest rates from the Fed trying to kind of rein that in, to try to rein in inflation. uh, And that has not created the potential anticipated recession. So that's a lot of growth going on. So that's what makes economists see this particular deficit issue is so particularly problematic because what is normally kind of reversed of what a normal Keynesian, which is pretty much all of our economists model, right? Growth brings deficits down as businesses and consumers owe more in taxes. Then deficits grow in downturns. But this doesn't happen right here. And so former uh, Obama administration economist Jason Foreman argued that this jump is, quote, a major crisis, end quote, on par with World War II and the 2008 financial meltdown. As he put it, quote, to see this in an economy, a 2.1 growth rate with double deficits with low unemployment is truly stunning. There's never been anything like it. The fact that it is so big in one year makes you think something weird freakish must be going on, end quote. So what that means is that for 2023, spending increased 16 percent while there was a 7 percent decrease in revenue. And if you look at uh, this more largely over time and you wipe out that COVID data, What you see happening is that during the Biden administration, spending has grown significantly since pre-COVID, while simultaneously revenue is uh, decreased. 
Now, again, as uh, Foreman notes, that gap is not occurring during a period of economic stagnation, but during a period of economic strength, which is startling. So in my opinion, and so again, this is one where we might have some differences. I see this as the huge problem for what Biden always calls his Bidenomics. And despite the fact that Trump, as I had noted earlier, was not any fixer of economic issues, this is going to be a huge problem for Biden. And I think it really takes a lot of the bubble out of what he said he'd been doing in terms of what we move forward. And I think it sets up some particularly difficult conversations in a particularly polarized age as we come towards the end of September. So what do you think about all of this, Ken? Well, I think it's a problem, but not a huge problem. Uh, so, I mean, a couple of kind of points to keep in mind. Um, w- one is that these deficits are smaller than, um, I believe, all the deficits that, that Trump ran. So we're only talking about, um, you know, it, it has doubled since a year ago, but that was after it fell um, by two thirds the year before that. So from three trillion down to one trillion and then back up to two tri- tri- trillion. And it was steady around three, tri- three trillion through the Trump years. So um, so I, I think it's it's not um, an unprecedented deficit. It's a lower than typical Trump deficit. Yeah. Then, you know, although I generally agree that um, uh, economies like the present uh, economy, um, where we're not in the middle of a, a pandemic anymore or anything like that, or relatively full employment, that this should be a time um, where fiscal and monetary policy should work to bring down the deficits and not to increase the deficits. Um, and so I agree with you that things are not moving in the, in the right direction here. Um, I think that the problem is we're kind of in second best world here because um, you you have a, 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 a Congress that caused essentially 100% of this deficit with the 2017 uh, tax cuts, um, which which cost $3 trillion. Um, and, and it's a Congress that's not going to repeal those tax cuts and is not going to um, really do anything on the revenue side. And so I think, you know, with that, with that on the uh, being part of the context here, if the question is, which is worse, is it worse to run a $2 trillion deficit or is it worse to make $2 trillion in, in budget cuts? Um, I think it's worse to make the two trillion in, in budget cuts. So I think we're we're actually you know within the framework we're in. I think the the we're in you know if if, you, if tax increases are off the table, then it's this is a, a problem, but it's the it's the lesser evil. See, and this is where I, I have a fundamental problem with uh, Democrats on this front. Right, the the kind of uneasy alliance that you have described there, which is the we are not going to back. Uh, and this is an issue I had with Republicans, right? We're not going to back the uh, going after and ensuring that we're bringing in the money that we're supposed to bring in, right? That was one of the things we can't we can't spend money on that. But at the same time, having these discussed to say, okay, well, second best world is 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 we spend money like we're bringing it in, uh, even though we we were going to you know tacitly recognize that we're not going to actually bring those that money in. And the answer, the long term answer, has been. Hey, you know, the system can take that hit. The system can take that hit. And, and that's, that surely is the case. But the system can only take that hit so many times. And I, and I think one of the things that makes this particularly troubling uh, is that, as you had noted and kind of agreed, right, this is going to be the first time in contemporary history where we're seeing this level of increase combined with a period of growth. Which means that if we end up having a period, if we do have some kind of recession or a slowdown to the economy, which, of course, remember, that's what the Fed is attempting to do. And I'm not suggesting that's necessarily wrong. 
But if they succeed in that, what that means is, is that it will undoubtedly be an even bigger percentage as we move into the following year. Uh, and that depends on how long that period of stagnation might exist. So I, I, I think one of the problems that especially my libertarian uh, friends have had uh, who kind of come out of that old 1990s when uh, uh, Ron Paul was more focused primarily on economic issues back then was, you know, next year's the year, you know, next year's the year, next year's the year, next year's the year. And I, and I always really took issue with that. But there is, in fact, kind of that point. And, and, and that's where I have some disagreement to say, oh, well, it's, it's a second best world and we can live in the second best world indefinitely. And I think the answer is we really can't live in that second best world indefinitely. And as I had noted a second ago, when you account for, you know, look, if you, when you take a look at that deficit spending as part of the GDP, it's relatively flat from 16 until we get to COVID, relatively. Then COVID, let's just, okay, again, there's all kinds of things, as even uh, uh, Jay had said, you know, you know, we're all monetary policy guys now. You, know, you have this huge increase. But in the aftermath, during the Biden times, you see a significant increase. And, and again, I'm not attributing that all to Biden. I'm just saying that that is indicator of, I'm not sure I can go down your path of, hey, the system can, can sustain this forever and indefinitely. And again, I'm not trying to be Ron Paul and say, hey, next year's the year where gold, you know, everybody has to, yeah, no. But these, I think, are something that we can't keep just saying, well, we'll live with the second best forever. What's your response to that? Well, I, I'm not even sure about that. I, I think maybe we can live with the second best forever. But what I'm what I'm more sure of is that we can certainly live with it now, right? I mean, usually, usually the the main rap against um, running big deficits is that it's uh, inflationary. Um, but in fact, right now we know that inflation has been tamed again. Um, you know, I know a lot of people don't believe that because the prices went up a lot a year ago and they didn't come back down in a deflationary sense. But they they aren't going up anymore. And that's even now you even if you include the volatile stuff like food and energy, which for a while they would exclude, you know, even the, un, you know, the, not just the core inflation, but the overall inflation, it's pretty tame. Um, and so I, I don't think we see deficits causing problems uh, of any particular sort. We still have pretty full uh, employment. Um, so, you know, we have a pretty good economy right now in terms of all possible measures of the real economy at the same time that we have these big deficits. So, you know, if the idea is, well, we can't run these kind of deficits forever, eventually they're going to cause us some harms. Um, you know, that could be an argument for starting to trim them back at a time when, um, you know, trimming them back would 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 um, reduce some of those harms. But right now, trimming back this deficit would cause harms. And running the deficit, I'm not seeing any harms that it's causing. Um, and again, I don't even know, I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, so I can't dispute what you said. But I don't believe that this is the first time when, uh, even in the 21st century, when we've had periods of both um, growth and uh, increases in deficit. I think in I think the deficit increased under um, G.W. Bush, and I know it increased quite a lot under Trump to much higher levels than we're seeing now. And so I, I, I think no, every it time did. Now, to, to be fair, because I yeah. do have it in front of me and I don't I'm not trying to yeah. use that as a yeah. disadvantage. Yeah. The preponderance of that happens during the years I was kind of cutting out. Now, I wouldn't hold I would still want to hold Trump and Congress accountable for their covid spending. But I recognize that I'm in the uh, I'm in the minority for that. So if you cut out the COVID spending, you know, it doesn't jump the way that one might, ex- you know, not as, not as large as you would one expect. It's during his COVID period that that has its biggest, you know, as you get into March of uh, uh, 2020. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, some, and I finally just did uh, bring up the numbers, and um, I, I, yeah, I can see that, uh, you know, that that the numbers, um, the deficit numbers uh, are higher now. You're absolutely right about that um, than they were in the years that I was I was thinking of. Um, but uh, so I, I want to rescind my thought that they might not have been. You're you're definitely right about that. But that if we're currently running uh, um, something along the lines of an 11 to 12 percent. Budget deficit uh, that that's pretty high by historic standards. It's certainly at least in peacetime. Um, the uh, but um, but I would still say you know that the the main causes of that are on the, the the revenue side, right? That we've had we had two series of big tax cuts, first under G.W. Bush and then again under Trump in 2017, which starved the country of revenues uh, to pay its bills. And we would not have these these um, we would not have these. Uh, uh, deficits if it wasn't for those tax cuts. And and meanwhile, you know, nobody, nobody except for the very far right uh, within the Republicans is talking about making the um, spending cuts that would be necessary to pay for those tax cuts. Um, so so I, I think that if, if we're not going to make these spending cuts, and I think we should not make them, that they would all cause much, much more harm to the economy. If we if we got rid of Social Security, if we got rid of Medicare, um, if we dramatically reduced the size of our military, um, these kind of things are going to cause far more harms than this budget deficit is, 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 cost, is costing us. And so I, I think the, the best world would be, you know, Store the the tax rates that can pay for the bills, but the the second best rate is uh, the second best thing is you know just borrow money to pay the bills until until we actually see what harm that's causing. Okay, so I'm going to move us forward a little bit, Ken, and we're going to move internationally for a second uh, 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 to an area of interest, and so. Uh, Mexico had a big shift uh, in when it came to the courts with their high Supreme Court uh, uh, finding that uh, abortion is going to be federally legal. Now, that means a little bit something different uh, uh, than what we think of in the United States. Uh, But this has kind of been uh, something you've been following. So I'm going to kind of let you set us up on that one, Ken. Yeah. So in in Mexico, um, Mexico had its uh, its its version of Roe versus Wade um, just this week, um, and it's it's not as complete as our version of Roe versus Wade is. And I'll I'll explain the federalism aspect of it, um, but I think the trend is definitely in a in a very pro choice uh, direction. So in in the United States version of federalism, at the time that as everyone knows, I think at the time that Roe versus Wade was decided, um, and abortion was uh, therefore protected as a constitutional right, um, that ruling was applicable everywhere in the United States. So it made it, it overturned all state laws that prohibited abortion. Um, in, in Mexican federalism, uh, a, a Mexican Supreme Court ruling does not overturn the laws of the states, um, but it does apply uh, in federal installations that are in the states. So what that means is that when the when the Mexican Supreme Court decides that um, abortion is now, as of this week, a protected constitutional right under the Mexican Constitution, uh, states can still have laws that prohibit it, and they can still enforce those laws within their states, um, but they can't enforce those laws in uh, federal uh, installations. And and since there um, is a national health care system there and there's a lot of federal hospitals, uh, that means that abortion can be performed in the federal hospitals everywhere in Mexico, um, but but can't necessarily be perform, performed in, in private clinics um, in, in states that will still uh, prohibit it. But that, that Mexican Supreme Court decision uh, follows um, several 
uh, uh, Mexican state Supreme Court decisions that had already ruled similarly uh, in several of the states. And so the, the great trend right now in Mexico, you know, this year um, is a kind of a big legal shift um, to protect abortion rights. And I just thought it was worth us talking about because in the United States, you know, everyone knows that the, our legal shift has gone obviously in the opposite direction, that Roe versus Wade was overruled by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case last year, um, that, that many states moved quickly after that to um, prohibit or to revive old prohibitions um, against abortion or to impose great restrictions. And so, you know, we see on the one hand these these kind of trends that look very opposite each other in these neighboring countries where, you know, we're, we're, Mexico is moving towards uh, abortion liberalization, right while the United States is moving um, towards um, uh, re recriminalizing or, or greatly restricting um, aspects of abortion in some places. Um, but I guess my my view about how I was thinking about this, and I'd like to get your your thoughts on this because we might find some disagreement here, is that I think that says more about the issue of how defective and weak uh, American democracy is um, than anything about the issue of abortion. Because it seems to me what we're really seeing here uh, is that in, in both countries, um, public opinion is moving increasingly pro-choice. And that in Mexico, um, there's a mechanism where, you know, as public opinion moves, um, the restrictions get liberalized. And of course, Mexico is a Catholic country and traditionally a socially conservative country, and they have much more of a legacy of restricting abortion than we do. And a lot of that's still alive, but but it's it's being um, liberalized. Uh, whereas here, you know, when the Supreme Court and some of the gerrymandered state legislatures you know, have moved um, to restrict abortion rights that people uh, previously uh, enjoyed. Um, you see almost not only do you see almost a, a, a uniform uh, uh, outcome um, in states where every state, no matter how red or how blue, that's put any kind of abortion question on a public ballot, um, and they you know they range in what's asked on the ballot, but but the the, the side that's more pro-choice has won a uh, hundred percent of these, and some you know some state legislative elections and and some congressional elections uh, seem to have been influenced by by the uh, issue in the post-Dobbs environment, uh, primarily on the pro-choice side. And the other thing I noticed is that the Guttmacher Institute in the United States, which studies um, abortion and sexual and reproductive health issues, um, did a, a pretty detailed study where they compared um, rates of abortions and numbers of abortions in the United States. Uh, first six months of 2022, overall uh, response to um, Dobbs where, you know, both uh, politically in terms of ballot initiatives and um, numerically in terms of a number of abortions obtained, uh, you know, the, 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 the shift all seems to be in the same direction as what we're seeing in Mexico. But, um, but yet our, 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 our political system is, I, I believe, so defective that what you're not seeing is that being reflected in what legislatures are doing. Well, you know, as we had talked about before the show, Mexico was not an area that I was most familiar with. You know, when I when I think of Latin America and where I've studied, I spent a lot of time uh, in Brazil, thinking about Brazil, studying about Brazil. And so one of the things I had to kind of look at and think about was, well, you know, how similar or different is Mexico from the rest of Latin America? Now, for, for listeners, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is these are primarily Catholic countries. And so they're demographically uh, on some of these items very different than the United States. So uh, even today, I had to look up the most recent uh, stats, but even today, as of 2023, you know, in Brazil, you know, tw only 26% of uh, uh, respondents 
want legalized abortion and 70% want to ban abortion in all or most cases, right? That is huge. In Mexico, so I had to kind of compare and take a look at this. It's a little, it's not as uh, drastic as Brazil, but it's a little closer to Brazil than it is for the United States. So right now, again, is the spring of uh, 2023. Mexico stands at 46% for legalizing abortion and 50% for banning in all or most of the cases. So you actually still have a, a slight majority for banning abortion in Mexico rather than the United States. Now, the United States, although you kind of think of it like you were saying, Ken, it, you know, it's flipped the other way. The, the population is, is flipped uh, 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 likewise the other direction, right? So it's legalizing at 62% and banning at only 36%, you know, so, so much, much lower. So, I mean, you make, a, you make an interesting argument, but in some ways it kind of seems like although the courts have gone different directions, they have gone different directions despite the opposite uh, uh, political preference. And so maybe these are in both cases where we're seeing just the fact that courts don't necessarily or even often uh, respond to all public pressures because, again, you would, you know, if they were responding to public pressure, at least that initial look at the data would suggest that Mexico might have ruled the other direction, uh, unless you're assuming that they're trying to like look, for, you know, do a forward look at that. But that that made me seem a little less likely. I, I'm not sure. Again, I don't have close. Just my my brief thought about that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I'm very grateful that you got those uh, opinion opinion numbers because I didn't know them. But I guess the way I would I would think about this uh, again, largely you know being agreeing with the things that you said is uh, that um, Mexico seems to be on more of a path, probably because it is closer to the United States and influenced by U.S. media and 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 has more interaction with Americans um, than than the countries further south into Latin America. I think. I think you know Mexico probably is on a path where the numbers of you know a few decades ago would have been more like the numbers in the 20s that you're talking about in Brazil, um, and so moving towards the the high 40s pro-choice, even while the um, majority may may still be anti-choice, um, you know small majority, um, that's definitely a trajectory in a in a pro-choice um, uh, uh, direction, and I do think that um, you know courts often. You know, capture um, trajectories so that, for instance, if you think about when our Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education, um, you know that had to be kickstarted by the court. The legislatures weren't doing that themselves, um, but the but but it was in the movement of what public of where public opinion was going, and that's one of the reasons why, um, even though there was resistance to it in some sections of the country, you know, it was widely seen as a good decision um, because I think it was kind of harnessing the trajectory that public opinion was going. Going and 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 I, I that's kind of how my sense of marriage towards a moment where you know the populace is becoming much more um, accepting of it. So I, I, I yeah I, I take it your point that Mexico may not be over the tipping point yet, and that the court's decision there may have been counter majoritarian in the moment. But I think I think it was riding the the, the, the trend wave. there. Yeah, I, I'll and, say because we have to move on. But I yeah. will say you know, one kind of prediction I was thinking about as you were talking about it, and I had been thinking about the numbers there. You know, one weird thing is, is, you know, and I don't know what the Mexican, I don't have all the data, you know, the, the longitudinal data there, but in the United States, of course, right, those numbers have shifted in the post Dobbs, uh, uh, you know, uh, away from uh, 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 abortion rights activists. I mean, excuse me, towards pro-choice activists, right, in the wake of Dobbs. I wonder if the converse would be true in Mexico, 
So it'll be, it would be kind of an interesting case example where you can kind of do a true comparison case. You know, I'm a comparativist too, so right, you know, and take a look. So you have, the, you have Dobbs in the United States, and we, we have seen those numbers trend away from individuals like myself uh, t- towards more open choice options. And then in Mexico, since you have maybe a slightly in the other way, it'll be curious to see, do the polling numbers continue in the direction uh, uh, of choice or do they uh, uh, shift a little bit in response to that uh, towards uh, 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 pro-choice, excuse me, uh, uh, pro-life advocates? Yeah, that will be an interesting thing to see. Um, I think my prediction would be that the, the, the this court in Mexico was kind of catching a wave and that things will keep moving in the same direction they have been. But you could be right. There could be a backlash. I'm actually surprised. When, the number you gave for the U.S., which was 62, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it, but it's higher than I was expecting. That, that well, the yeah, US because, again, it has trended choice. in that direction post-Dobbs. That, that has been a clear – I mean, again, no matter what you think about it, that's just the empirical you know, nature of it. Um, and if anybody you – know, if you're a listener, if you want to take a look at that – uh, uh, that is from Pew Research, if you'd like to take a look at some more of the statistics uh, that relates to that. So, Ken, we're, we're running low on time, but we did want to do one last thing. It's kind of a, a politics guy's tradition, and that is the week of Labor Day uh, to do a, a state of the labor union in the United States. And so I, I thought we might do that a little bit. Now, this might be a little bit ironic, and, and I had saved this because I was curious about your reaction. You know, I don't get Labor Day off. <laughs> so I actually had to come in on Labor Day. Uh, and I was, work- I was working on Monday while the rest of you all were grilling out and doing whatever you're doing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, be that as it may, right, I thought we kind of set that up. And maybe we can chat for just a couple minutes about this. But one of the things that we've seen is there has been a lot of increase in favorability polls towards unions in the United States in the last few years, especially uh, in 2022 and 2023. However, that has not changed kind of the empirical reality uh, of where labor unions have been. So labor unions, data for this really goes back to 1917, approximately, uh, and labor unions really take off in the late 1930s and into the 1950s. By the time you get to the end of the 1950s, starting in the 1960s, membership, uh, not precipitously, but steadily begins to decline. And that pattern of steady decline never shifts. It never looks back. It's almost a a perfect line. Uh, So today, union membership is on par where union membership was in the 1917s, which is just around 10% of workers, uh, give or take. And, And this corresponds, of course, with an overall decrease in minimum wage for individuals around the country. So if you take a look at the Treasury and data, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, does a really good uh, uh, take a look at this. Uh, You know, in 1968, for example, it's going to take 19 hours of work to afford rent in San Jose, which is the most expensive in the data set. And and today it would take 85 hours of work at minimum wage. Uh, Even in the cheapest of cities in the data set, which is Toledo, Ohio, not far from you, uh, uh, Ken, (laughs) You know, it was 15 hours in, 19, uh, in 1968, uh, and today it's 27 hours again. And if you take a look at things like owning a home, it, it hasn't ever uh, uh, come back. You know, I, I know that uh, from those on the left, they often see this as being kind of the disconnect, uh, the classic disconnect. I had a professor who I say, this is just proof. This was kind of one of his areas. Uh, he worked on this in graduate school. He's like, this is just proof. Uh, you, know, you can't kind of trust the average voter, which always kind of made me chuckle a little bit 
because I thought, you know, his his whole the rest outside of this issue, he always wanted people to vote on more and more things. And I thought, well, if you think that this many people can screw up so badly, why would you want them to vote? I always felt like that was a weird uh, a disconnect there uh, 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 from somebody kind of on on the union left. Uh, I'm not actually completely anti-union, uh, but it doesn't appear that any of the empirical realities that individuals have today has driven them to the unions, even while it has potentially made them like the idea of them more. Uh, it certainly hasn't changed how anybody has has behaved in large ways uh, or changed the number of unions, again, since the 1960s to now, as they've just kind of trickled off. And so labor in the United States for me, uh, Ken, seems to have kind of, I mean, whether you loved it or hated it, I think it kind of lost. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Um, in fact, one of the um, interesting flips from from 100 years ago, you mentioned that the numbers are back down to around 10% of employees, which is about what it was in the 1910s. Probably in the 1910s, that most of those would have been um, private sector uh, employees, um, whereas today you're, you're, you, it's disproportionately public sector employees True. that are still unionized. And, uh, um, and I think the reason that public sector employees have hung on a little bit better in some areas of the country country than private um, is that in in some places it wouldn't be popular for the government to try to union bust you know now in in other places um, the 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 governments um, you know are, have just as free of a hand as any private employer to try to union bust and I think they can they can succeed in doing that when they want to um, but you do have areas of the country where um, you know that that's not what the, the voters want and so those are the few places where um, uh, public sector unions I think have managed to hang on um, I think there's a lot of reasons for the decline in the labor movement. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it does have to do with basically the decline in um, the kinds of jobs where people actually think they're going to stay at the same job for a long time. And uh, I think that that if, um, you know, if people has sort of have a commitment to um, being in a, in a place, being in a city, being with an employer, um, you know, they're more likely to want to, um, you know, put the investment of time and effort and money uh, into, you know, unionizing and trying to make their workplace a, a better situation for themselves. Whereas if people don't feel that connected to the workplace, um, you know, they, there's there's no real reason to do that, to, to make that investment. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think professional um, uh, tactics by management strategists, which have really, um, you know, been been um, uh, directed at thwarting the development of, of, of unions um, have been somewhat uh, successful. But I, I don't think the uh, American workforce is, is better off for the demise of unions. I don't think the gig economy is a great thing for uh, American workers, and uh, and so I, I think I think it's a sad um, uh, it's a sad state of affairs. But I I certainly can't disagree with your assessment that that's where we are. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to say, you know, Ken, if if you're listening, I think that's it for the show this week. So thanks for joining me. Absolutely. So, you know, if, if you've already made it this far and you're not already a supporters of the politics, guys, I really hope you'd consider to become one, right? Because it's supporters that make this podcast go. And not, you don't have to just do it out of the kindness of your own heart, right? You don't have to be some altruistic individual. You can be doing it because you want to get a lot of cool, good stuff. Like, for example, the ad-free versions of everything we put out, as well as, I think, one of our coolest things, which is our supporter-exclusive midweek show. As a matter of fact, here in just a couple of minutes, Ken and I, are we're not going to take a break yet. We're going to be headed over and continuing our dive through the United States Constitution, which has just been really phenomenal. Listeners have really loved it. And I'd love for you to be able to join Ken and myself 
as, as we head into Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. And don't feel bad. The great thing about it is you don't just get them week by week. You get the whole go. So that means that you basically have a book's worth of material from me and myself and Ken on the United States Constitution. And that has just been phenomenal. You can join us on that. And we've got a lot left to do. We're going to be heading into the amendments and more in the upcoming weeks. So we'd really love to have you. Uh, and that's one of the big things you get when you become uh, a supporter. But there's all other kinds of things, too. So supporters are going to get to be a part of our very active Discord group. Uh, I'm on there constantly. There's politics guys in gear. And you're going to see all of these different things at the different levels of support. So if you want to check that out, see what those different levels of support are and what you get, just head to patreon.com slash politics guys. Head to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can see those levels of support right just on the show.com slash support. So again, patreon.com slash politics guys or politicsguys.com slash support, or just scroll down with your thumb and check out those links in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, you want to join us for Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, but you're just not in a financial position to do that right now, we get that. All you got to do is just shoot a little bit of an email to mail at politicsguys.com, and we can get you set up on that mailing list. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, review on whatever podcast app you use and share those episodes on social media. Maybe Ken got it wrong. Maybe I got it wrong on the deficit. And, and, and you want to call us out for it. Yeah, pop. Yeah, share this episode and tell us what we got right and wrong. We'd love to see there and interact with you there as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or just anything else you'd like to share with us, you can always reach the guys at politicsguys, mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And again, you'll find all of those things in the show notes. A special shout out, as always, to the executive producers of The Politics Guys, who are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. I hope you'll be back with us next week, new episode. Hope you'll join us then.